suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back to you, listener. This is episode 238 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, your host, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Paul the 12th Man. Greetings, Earthlings. And a regular guest uh, is Hugh Harris. Thanks for having me. And, and Peter is back with us again. Good evening. Welcome aboard, gentlemen. Once again, four privileged white males will explain the world to you. <laughs> Sit back and take it all in and disagree. So this is a podcast where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion. Normally we talk about uh, current affairs, what's going on in the week. This one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to talk about morality and oh, where it came from and where it's going, maybe. And we're going to look at the history of it. And so we're not going to really look at current affairs. We'll do that another time next week. So... Uh, we're live streaming. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Already Ross has said hello, so that's good. I think everything's working. I spent uh, an inordinate number of hours this afternoon <laughs> making sure that it did, so I'll never get that back again in my life, but it looks like it's worked. Um, he's impressed with the amount of cables and equipment I've got here. He's a member of, a, of an amateur band, and he looks longingly at, at the cables and equipment here. Yeah, I look, I have to say our band is professional, given that we've been paid once. Okay. We have been paid once, So, but the amount of equipment you've got here puts, puts my stuff to shame. It's yeah. unbelievable. There we go. So anyway, dear listener, we're going to take you through morality and... Uh, one of the reasons why we're doing that is I often hear through podcasts and through the media where people talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic and how it's lucky we've got it because it's basically what's created the civilization that we have and that we'd be essentially there'd be raping and pillaging going on and uncontrolled slaughter um, of the masses if it wasn't there. So aren't we lucky for the Judeo-Christian ethic? And so, um, and this is the idea that when we talk about Judeo-Christian ethic, what do you understand that to be, 12th man? I wasn't expecting this. Mm. Uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic, oh, what do I understand to be the essence of the Judeo-Christian ethic? Mm. Um, love thy neighbour, you know, don't offend God, yep. go to church every right. week. Sort of stuff you get from the Bible, really. Stuff you but get the from Old the Bible, Testament, yeah. the New Testament, yeah. the Old Testament being the Judeo component, mm. and the Christian being the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so it's this idea that through the Bible, mm. Old and New Testament, we've picked up moral guidance that's enabled us to have the flourishing <clears throat> civilization that we have today. Yeah. But the actual term Judeo-Christian is really only a recent invention. It's only something that cropped up in America sort of post-war, post-Second World War. Seriously? And really only appeared in Australia in sort of late 70s, something like that. So it's a term that's... Post-Second World War? Yeah, mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Brian Morris in his book, Sacred mm. to Secular, found a little bit in there and basically the parliamentary library um, had no reference to it until 1974. <laughs> so, so here's the theory that... 
basically when they talked in America about the Judeo-Christian ethic, they're really wanting to say Christian. Yep. Mm. But they added Judeo as a bit of an ant, as a bit of sort of an anti-Semitism um, to avoid. As an apology for the anti-Semitism that gave rise to... Post-Second World War, yep, sort of inclusive of Jewish people Mm. uh, was the reason for putting the Judeo in. But in more recent times, Judeo-Christian is perhaps a little more exclusive because it really means not that Islamic kind of... um, (laughs) Yeah, not all the Abrahamic religions. That's right. So so originally Judeo-Christian, well, let's include the Jews, and now it more or less means... But let's not include the Muslims. I, is you know one way of looking at it. Well, I think that's true because the sort of people who are normally raving about the Judeo-Christian ethic are certainly not uh, brown people of colour. It's going to be white Christians who are talking about it. So, mm-hmm. okay. So, um, oh, and one other reason I want to talk about it is somebody like um, Jordan Peterson talks about it. So, for all the Jordan, do we have any Jordan Peterson fans in the room at the moment? Hugh. I wouldn't say fan, but I think that he has some interesting comments on things. I find his views interesting and challenging, but I don't find uh, probably the more famous views that he has particularly interesting. Do you find his... The way he explains his views persuasive? I, I just find him really hard to listen to, I have to say. I think he sounds a little bit like he's got a chip on his shoulder with a lot of the times when he's explaining something. Um, uh, I've seen some of his YouTube lectures on certain topics and he's very interesting. I think he's very interesting about some of his um, the books that he's written, particularly about the uh, the hero as a the archetype of the hero as such a foundational part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, he's big on stories and myths becoming part and of our myths. culture and yeah. driving our ethics. Yeah. So he would say to atheists, all right, you may not think you are Christian, but actually you are because you've absorbed the myths and stories mm. Uh, mm. of Christianity and you are leading a lifestyle because of that. So you're actually, you've absorbed it subconsciously mm. or not. So that's think, part of his argument. Probably yeah, a little I bit think, of truth in that too. Yeah, I think, there's, yeah. I think mm. there is some truth in that, but there's also, mm. or the return point, some mm. truth in the fact that most Christians don't believe in the same thing mm. and modern Christians don't believe in the same things that Christians believed in 2,000 years ago. Yep. And, for instance, I had a recent debate with a very prominent Christian where we clarified that their idea of hell is not anywhere near the traditional idea of hell. In fact, their idea of hell has no visual representation. They don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. They just know that they don't want to say it's fire and brimstone and hellfire because clearly that's immoral in um, in the way we understand morality these days. Mm. So I don't think I think there's a bit of truth to both ways. So the Judeo-Christian ethic has in fact changed and adapted to you know modern standards. Mm. I think it has. Also, I always take the turn to be a reference to Western civilization as opposed yes. to Eastern, and yes. and then I get confused as to where the Orthodox Christians fit in. Is that they're sort of they get a bit ignored there, but um, but. I, I take Judeo-Christian to be this reference to Western civilization, mm, yeah, as opposed to Eastern, and yes, and but I don't know if it started off in that meaning that, but that's mm. how I sort of take it now. Yeah, of course. The other thing is, if uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic has plagiarized um, ideas from before, then 
it's wrong to say that we're really following a Judeo-Christian ethic. We're really following whatever it is that it's plagiarised from. Yes. So yes, that's such as the golden rule. Exactly, for for, that'd be the classic one, for example. So yeah. um, the the golden rule: do unto others as did as you, you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Did you dig out the origin of the golden rule, Trevor? Um, basically, that it's appeared in a number of places independently. So I Confucius, I didn't mm. notice a. That in the you know the Greek um, philosophy that we were reading in that book, there is a, this idea that uh, the concept of reciprocity has appeared in every society, every human society. Every society. Mm. There you go. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Although maybe not expressed in the same words, yep. um, uh, evangelical Christians would argue that Confucius's version of the uh, Golden Rule is actually called is the silver rule because he, he expressed it in a slightly different way, in in a kind of negative way instead of a positive way. Like don't let people do something that would that you wouldn't like them to have done to you. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Whereas basically it's just the concept of reciprocity. Mm. Uh, Ken and Malik in his book said that... So we'll be quoting a few, from a few books. So uh, The Quest for a Moral Compass by Ken and Malik. And he said in his book that the Golden Rule has a long history, an idea hinted at in Babylonian and Egyptian religious codes before fully flowering in Greek and Judaic writing and independently in Buddhism and Confucianism too. Mm. So it's an idea that's um, been around a long time and and I'm going to argue a bit later on that it's part of our evolution. So it goes back to the very beginning. So we'll oh get to goodness, that. Goodness, we might yeah. actually dis- we might actually agree on something tonight. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess uh, did the Jews or the Christians invent a new moral code, or did they plagiarise existing moral codes? Um, so let's look at what moral codes were around before. Christianity and at the time of Judaism. So in Ken and Malik's book, he starts with Greek mythology. And really in um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, we've got gods, but they're quite uh, what he calls capricious gods, and they're very human, these gods. They are jealous and angry and conniving and very human in their in their dealings with people. But um, <clears throat> people also in that time... There's sort of a combination where they're fated to their circumstances which are beyond their control and even to some extent their emotions that they have are fated to them, that uh, they were locked into circumstances. Determined by their social roles. Yes, indeed. Mm. A lot of the time the responses that these characters made in certain situations were responses that they had to make. They kind of were locked in through, you're right, their social position meant, well, in this position I must do this, or I'm an angry man, I'm always angry and I'm fated to be angry and yeah. therefore I'm, or I'm jealous and I will be respond in this sort of manner. So, um, uh, so personal choice and responsibility is limited, um, but... Um, and that, that's sort would of, you say the gods were reflections of aspects of... Human, mm. what would you say, existence, human life, and again... They were know, just like a group of humans so, sitting so, around in the so clouds. So a warrior god would act like a warrior. Yes. And, and a king god would act like a king, and etc. And they sit around and quarrelled and loved amongst each other as much as a, mm. a group of humans yeah. would. So that was the sort of uh, the gods that uh, Greek mythology was, was pulling up. 
Then, uh, so that's around the sort of 8th century BCE. And around the 6th century, uh, we start to get philosophy emerging. And um, what constituted a virtuous act or a good life was not uh, intuitively grasped through myth, but was explicitly established through rational argument. So at about this time, people, people figured out we can work shit out, like Pythagoras with his yeah. right-angle triangle and the hypotenuse and the square equal, and people thought, bloody, you know, we can actually start working things out. Maybe we can work out this virtue and living sort of stuff sort of evolved at that time with the, with the Greeks. So, um, Paul, any favourites amongst Socrates, Plato or Aristotle? Ooh. That's a that's a big ask. Mm. No, I, I don't have any particular favourites, but right. uh, I, I was just. So we start with Socrates. Yes, yeah, Socrates. Right. So Socrates' idea was um, that it was about, you know, it was about the examined life, wasn't it, and determining mm. uh, what made you happy in life, wasn't it? Uh, yes, he, he said you should examine life. Um, uh, isn't that what he said when he was um, convicted um, to be um, killed because of his um, uh, supposed heresy and uh, disrupting um, society that he said that he won't recant on his beliefs because the unexam- unexamined life is not worth living? Yes, uh, and uh, he was about how people could... Um care for their souls by acquiring virtues. But the thing I like about Socrates, and uh, Peter, I think you'll appreciate this about mm. Socrates, was the Socratic method. Yes. Yes. So, Which we, we suffered at law school. Yes. But, you know, excellent training. <laughs> so, and it, dear listener, if you're a regular on this podcast, I, I like to think that at different times I've subjected you, Paul, to the Socratic oh. method because you'll we'll come out with... More than once. Yeah, we'll come All out with... Um, <laughs> with uh, a statement about whether a shopkeeper should sell cakes to um, gay couples or something like mm-hmm. that. And and what I try and do in that case is say, well, let's look at some similar situations and whether you agree to the same thing. So in a slightly different circumstance, what do you say? And if you change your mind, uh, really because the facts change but the underlying principles haven't, then it's about exposing inconsistencies <laughs> in thinking and trying to get to the actual general principle that's at play. So, um, so it's a really useful thing to be able to do is to sort of uh, raise up a whole bunch of alternatives and say, do you still think the same way about this? Now, if we change the facts slightly, do you still think the same way about this? So, um, you know, and you can use it in all sorts of things. Like I'm, as you would know, Hugh, forever railing about Americans' intervention in other countries around the world. Yes. And I quite often say, well, how would the Americans feel if some other country was doing the exact same thing to them? They wouldn't be happy, would they? Like, no. And if your only answer is that the reason it's okay is because it's us and not them, then that's not a good reason. You have to have a general <laughs> underlying principle that can apply universally. And when you've got that, you've got something worthwhile but if it's if it's less than that it's it's worth nothing so that's the sort of uh socratic uh, method and uh so that was one of the great things he did uh, with socrates socrates and the euthyphro dilemma anyone familiar with the euthyphro dilemma yes. so that is that um <clears throat> is um what is good because god says it is good which is arbitrary 
Mm. Um, or is what is good good because it is good? Yeah. And so, um, you know, how can you how can you say what is the good? Yeah. So Socrates was being charged with impiety and he was running around sort of questioning people about, well, what is godly and what's good? And uh, Euthyphro was this character who was a prosecutor who had prosecuted his own father for killing a slave. I think he'd beaten the slave, left him in a gutter and the slave had died or something and this prosecutor was prosecuting his own father for killing the slave. Anyway, so... Socrates thought, well, this youth, Euthyphro, is a good guy to talk to and um, find out about godliness. And yeah, so he said to him, well, what's good? And he said, well, it's good if God says it's good. But uh, Socrates says, well, if he just says it's good, surely he can't make something good if it's already bad. Like if it's murder, for example, just by God saying it's good, mm. can't make it good. No. And Euthyphro said, well, um, it's good and and if God identifies it as good. Mm. And then uh, Socrates says, so that means that good must exist independently of the gods. So it must be sitting there as good and the gods then identify it as being good and it's independent and can exist and crop up uh, separate to the gods. So what's the point of the gods in that case? So, so do you agree that it's arbitrary that if just because God says something, it's good, mm, that's, that it's good. So if God mm. said, um, you must murder your firstborn son or you must torture uh, civilians, God says that, that that is the good thing to do, that can be good? Or is good something that has to be measured by a more objective manner than that? Well, Socrates was saying because of that example, it's clearly ridiculous to say that whatever a god says is good is good. You can't rely on that. And, of course, at those days, gods were known to be crazy, capricious guys sitting around making all sorts of funny decisions. It was more, so they, it was they more credible that they would be yeah, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah, so they weren't regular. So he, um, so he established that um, morality itself um, was independent and perhaps there was an objective way of, of reaching what was good and deciding what was good. Um, and that's the main, uh, that's a big objection to divine, divine command theory, mm. that mm. God dictates what is good mm. and God dictates what subjective moral values. Mm. I think that's a killer argument against that. Mm. Plato, I find it hard to get a grip on Plato. He, just, mm. he seems to be, among some people, like the king of these mm. early philosophers, but it's hard to find something really concrete about Plato. Well, I think they often draw a line, you know, there's post-Platonic and pre-Platonic and this sort of... That, Plato is this line people draw through the history, and uh, but I don't know why. Yeah, but don't you think? I think it's interesting that Plato basically wrote down everything so- Socrates supposedly said. Yes, and Plato wrote all of his philosophy in plays and in dialogues between people. So you don't know for a start that is that what Socrates said, or is that what he elaborated on and made a good story mm. out of? Indeed, it's a bit like our Bible um, thing we were talking about. How much of this was actually the word of this person, and how much was made up by a subsequent scribe? So yeah, probably that's right. a lot. Yeah, and and sort of Plato does um, paint a very attractive picture of Socrates. So you might gild the lily a little bit. Mm. Mm. So do you see Plato as a direct sort of 
disciple of Socrates in it? Because his ideas was, were a little bit divergent. He was yeah, he yeah. was taught among yeah. by and a couple of others were taught yeah, by Socrates. And, and, yeah, Socrates and then Plato. Because Socrates apparently didn't Nashville. write anything down, did he? He didn't write anything, right. and he was more like. Uh, uh, he was married, but he didn't have any particular occupation, and he used to stand in the the public square and debate people, and yep. basically be a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> yes, yeah. The we get to where we get to the Christianity point, but mm. isn't Plato the point where we get this idea of this spark of virtue in everybody and surrounded by the material world? Certainly, there was a character called Thrasymachus who advocated naked self-interest because he said the ruling class are just screwing everybody uh, when they tell you to behave yourself. Go out there and do whatever you like. <laughs> and Plato said, no, 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 naked self-interest is bad for you and is unhealthy for you. Oh. So you shouldn't conduct yourself with just naked self-interest. So... Um, he didn't really explain why much more beyond than it's unhealthy to do that. He didn't really come up with great moral reasoning for it, but uh, that was part of his... He, he said it was a, a form of um, mental disease in a yes. sense, didn't he? yeah, an unhealthiness. An unhealthy yes. mind. You won't be happy if you do that. No. Yeah, it was kind of his reasoning. But at least it was one of these things of... Um, don't be so self-interested. Well, <laughs> make, makes a lot of sense, yeah. And even he, today... He gave, he gave as many reasons as Jesus did. Yeah, so. no, but, but, but even today, I mean, you can have, um, you know, uh, when matters go to court and things like that, you can talk about judges will recognise legitimate self-interest, but not just yeah. self-interest. I mean, self-interest might be, uh, I get to charge twice for everything I deliver and I, I, I'm not going to pay for anything else I acquire. Yeah. That's my self-interest. But no, 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 no. Legitimate self-interest is, well, you know, I, I, you've acquired something, you should pay for it, and, mm. and, and you shouldn't pay anything more than what you bargained for and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so you're entitled to pursue your self-interest, but it's still got to be legitimate. Yes. Judges, judges would say that today, and mm. I think that's consistent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the other thing he was famous for, just with finishing off with Plato, was the uh, hierarchy of preferred governments. So his idea of the uh, best form of government was an aristocracy. Oh, Second okay. was a military dictatorship. Yes. Okay. Third was an oligarchy. Oh, great. And then there was a democracy, which only ranked above tyranny. So oh, is, is this in really? the Republic? Is this in the yeah, Republic? I think so. Yeah. 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 Mm, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's, that's fantastic. Because he had this view that um, common people are driven by base desires. Um, soldiers have a yearning for honour, and rulers have uh, uh, their purpose is to look for reason. So he had a very sort of a class segregation about. Was he heavily interest? He was heavily influenced by Sparta. I think right. I recall something like that the, yes. the Spartan culture or the, the, their success they had had there, and that was a military style. Yeah, uh, society. Yeah, Sparta was um, what Nazi Germany aspired to be. <laughs> is, what, is what some people describe it as. Describe it as. So it was a very authoritarian. But uh, okay, so the the Greek the Athenians were into this, were developing this idea of, look, all of these philosophers, uh, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, were definitely about what you have to do is to be for the benefit of the polis, which is the city-state sort of thing. Your your actions must be favourable for our city. Um, but they were certainly freer than the uh, Spartans because the Spartans were very rigid in your commitment to Sparta and your roles were extremely rich in their, rich, uh, rigid and there wasn't uh, scope for any personal liberties in the Spartan world. So, in, And that sort of 
comes to the nub of part of our philosophy discussion is how much are you committed to the group and the community and how much free will to do your own individual libertarian thing? Mm. Uh, and and does, does free will actually exist? Not this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is a relevant question, though. Yes. At the base of it all. It, indeed it is. That so, comes a bit later, actually, doesn't yeah. it, in the um, Judeo-Christian tradition, is this idea of free will, isn't it? Um, More than the Greek one? I think it's essential to it. Without it, there is, there's really no punishment or reward if there's no real free will. Yeah. Well, but, we digress. Yeah, I mean, we if God knows everything you're going to do anyway, why bother running this experiment? Like, because well, you it know, is, yeah. yeah. So you really had no free will because he knew you were going to do that anyway. Or maybe he knew you were going to exercise your free will in such a way that mm. um, why conduct the experiment if he knows the results already? That's true. Because he's a sadist. But, yeah, but we've digressed. And we'll just finish off with uh, Aristotle. And um, his uh, idea was a state of human flourishing um, that's worth seeking. And basically, if you have a, if you conduct yourself virtuously, then happiness will come as a byproduct of that. And that's something I've read about in recent times when people talk about how can you be happy. And the answer is you shouldn't be pursuing happiness as such. If you're conducting life in a meaningful way, then happiness is a byproduct of that and will come about. So um, so that was kind of Aristotle's view. And he also had this sort of acorn theory that uh, an acorn's purpose is to grow up and become an oak. So things have a purpose and they have a meaningful existence if they achieve their obvious purpose. So uh, that was uh, Aristotle. So just briefly... Uh, before we get on to the Christians, um, after those three main Greeks, we had one little period there of Stoics, Stoicism. Stoicism. Mm. Mm. Marcus uh, Aurelius. Uh, yeah. And um, this was the idea of sort of accepting your fate. Yes. And this is important for Christianity. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's an idea that, okay, you've got a, a terrible terminal illness that, um, medicine can't fix well don't whine about it there's no point um, accept that and deal with it as you can but kind of accepting whatever mm. uh, fate throws at you that you can't deal with just accept it and and move on within that um, I like this line from Ken and Malik's book um, so this guy Zeno was a stoic and uh, he was once flogging a slave as you do and uh, who had stolen some goods. And the slave said, but I was fated to steal. <laughs> and, uh, and Zeno said, yes, and to be beaten as well. <laughs> Very stoic response. Fate <laughs> uh, so, so, can be a bitch. Yeah, but that, that sort of stoic acceptance of the situation you're in uh, was important for Christianity down the track. Um, oh, very much so adopted that yep. and also um, they kind of opened things up to the Christian idea because they really stopped talking about what's your role in terms of promoting the community and the polis more a case of how do you feel about life and think about yourself inwardly and that then opened up 
Christianity with people having a relationship with God and forgetting about the community as such or not having to think about promoting the, the city-state. So, um, so yeah, so that's the sort of lead-up to, uh, to the Bible period we get to. And when we get to, uh, how do you pronounce it, the Tanakh? By the G? Tanakh. Tanakh, mm. yeah. yeah. So what we've got... Hebrew. Oh, very weak. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh, what we've got there is a group of people who've um, uh, basically come up with this idea of a God who commands what you what is right and what you need to do and don't you dare think about it because I've written it down on these here ten tablets and your job is just to do it and not to think about it and um, that was the sort of movement in Christianity and Judaism which strikes me as as a sort of a backward step from where we were. It's sort of comical, isn't it? Mm. And that that Moses also went up on top of the clouds or the mountain and, and negotiated this with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Did he negotiate? I don't think he negotiated, did he? Well, he was up there. What was he discussing for 40? He was like humanity's union rep wow. up there discussing it with God. I, I, and I then he came was... down and smashed all the tablets and um, and then no, executed 3,000 people. <laughs> was that deliberate or an accident? He didn't smash, the what do you mean he smashed the tablets? Oh, first time he smashed did, them. Oh, did he? Yeah, he, smashed, he had to go back up there's again. Two, there's two yeah. stories. Seriously? The first really? one he smashed. Yeah, he, smashes he got them. upset because they were all misbehaving when he came back. He took so long. Ah. What were they, what were they <laughs> worshipping? What were they worshipping? The uh, oh. golden golden. I'm, I'm not sure if that was the event involving the golden calf, but, yeah, no, he, the original tablets he had to smash because he got so pissed off with them. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah I had to go back up again and do it because again. they were uh, uh, practicing idolatry by, right. by okay. making idols. Okay, I hope he had a good story for God the yeah. second time. He okay, went. I don't know if he was negotiating, but it certainly took a long time. It was, but but it's a it's a covenant again the, the, yeah. for the, for the Jews. Important they they were making. Yahweh was making covenants with his people. It's a kind of so contract. It's an agreement. So it? so I suppose negotiation. Yeah, but but. These are all always covenants between Yahweh and his people. Yep. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I doubt many religious people would accept my union rep uh, example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Muhammad negotiated. I've well, told you he? that story yes. many times. So He negotiated. Yeah, the five prayers that, that Muslims say every day, initially God said it's 50. <laughs> he got and, him down to five. And, and Muhammad haggled. <laughs> 50 <laughs> would be a bit it's onerous. True. He it? came down... <laughs> From the lower, higher level to the lower level, and I think it was Abraham who said to him, you know, how many prayers did God tell you to get your people to say? And he said, 50. And he said, oh, prayer's a weighty matter. Go back up and get it reduced. <laughs> Went back up, had it reduced to 45, came back down, same thing. He said, no, go back up again. And this repeated itself until it got down to five and then... Sorry, said, Abraham told. Yeah, I think it was Abraham. Yes, but Abraham was long dead. Yeah, but he's in heaven. I oh, know he's, he's going through the stages of he's heaven. In the stages of heaven. Uh, yeah, the stages of heaven. Yeah. So and Muhammad actually went up to heaven yes, to do this. Yes, on the night journey when he was on the half mule, on half the, donkey, uh, the and flying, climbed, flying climbed horse the horse golden ladder with Gabriel and passed through the levels of heaven. And when he came back with five, still Abraham said. Look, that's too many, and and Muhammad said, "Well, I feel too embarrassed to go back again, so that's that's why <laughs> that's why it's down to five. So he haggled. Which well, that's was, a, that, what is, that is a good story. Yeah. So that's all there in the 
in a lot of Imagine time. how much praying that they, they, they would have been doing if it stuck with 50, right? Yeah. <laughs> be just praying all day. Yeah. Never get anything done. Yeah. So Apparently uh, they, they seldom get much done anyway, even with the five. Yeah. So <laughs> the tablets then found their way into a chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, the Ark, yes. Which found its way into the temple mm-hmm. that they built. Yep. And the temple was sacked. The first yeah. temple, yeah, yes. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the um, yeah. by the um, Assyrians Babylon- or by the uh, Babylonians, right? Babylonians, Babylonians. Assyrians yes. was the first conquest, yeah. wasn't uh, it? I think the Babylonians was the second conquest. Uh, okay, um, yeah. no? no, the Babylonians was the first time yeah. uh, that Solomon's was temple so was Solomon's sacked. temple okay. was knocked over there, five eighty seven yeah. BCE. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess at that point the tablets were lost. Yes, I think so. Right. Yeah. Okay. But and I think they might have been found again. That's yeah, Stephen Spielberg they found them. them. <laughs> they might have found them again. So the Jews who lived there at that time, then basically a lot of them were exiled to Babylonia. Uh, yeah, whether, whether it was all of them, but yeah. some, 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 there yes. seems to be uh, accepted that there was uh, Jewish Jews in, in Babylon at the yes. time. Yep. who yep. went from that area. Yep. And, um, and then eventually... Babylon, Babylon fell, and yeah, the, the Jews, per, per, the Persians, uh, over around yes. them. Yep. So the Jews then returned, yes, and met up with the Jews who had stayed there. Correct. And the Jews who had been away and came back were far more rigid and uh, and tough on religion, well, rule than, bound, rule bound. Yes, they had their rules than yes. the guys who had stayed yep. there. So the guys who had stayed were doing things like mixed marriages, where Jews were marrying non-Jews and things. And the Jews who had been in Babylonia came back and said, what the hell are you doing? You can't do this. Uh, annul the marriages. And um, It's often the case that people who are in a sort of a diaspora become more um, conservative than the people actually in the original communities. To preserve like, their culture, they, yes. they're stricter like, with rules. Like, like yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they found that with sort of Islamic groups in America and whatever. Indeed. Mm. Get into a little closed community and can be... Uh, a lot more sort of uh, rigid in their thinking than yep. the communities back home. So that yep. appears to be what's happened there. Imagine mm. what Makes we'd sense. like. Mm. We'd Makes be sense. like yeah. if if we went to live in another country for a few, few generations. Yes. We'd be all very strict about wearing thongs and <laughs> stubbies. and <laughs> Maybe we would be. Um, so... Uh, what does Ken and Malik have to say about all that? Uh, that's kind of quoting what Ken and Malik were saying, really, about about that sort of idea that they, when the, the ones who went away were much more conservative than the ones who stayed behind. Mm. So, do you guys think it's a knockdown argument then against this sort of um, Judeo-Christian thing that we need to have these um, prescriptions for our morality? That what happened to the the Jews? and all the civilizations and cultures before God delivered those Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, the 350 or so that are in the Bible, if there was any need for him to do so, must we have had no morality prior to that? Well, that's the point, isn't it? Like there were some really marvellous civilizations that were occurring. People Mm. were able to cooperate and build amazing civilizations prior Mm. to... uh, the Bible being hmm. started by the Jews, and we've got uh, you know the whole of Asia who never hears mm-hmm. of yeah, that's right. the yes. whole Christ story. Well, it's a fair question because I, I think I was thinking about asking initially when you started yeah. off on the history. Were you suggesting that there's a point where there isn't a discussion of morality in writings, or that it, that it emerges at a particular point in time in our in in Western history? Is there a point? 
What I'm saying is that is that uh, the original um, writings of the Jews are really an assembly of the stories that they had gathered from mm. various tribes who coalesced and became that tribe in that area. And th- these are just historical stories that are gathered together in the same way that the Odyssey and the Iliad mm. were historical stories that were then gathered together um, yeah. in that way. When people start to get organised and can write things, they mm. they start to bring all that, those that, things That was in. something I took from the book, Trevor, where... Um Kenan Malik says the Iliad and the Odyssey gave ancient Greeks a sense of their history and a foundation stone of their culture and it established a moral framework for their lives. And the Jews sort of did the same thing with their old myths and stories, mm. gave them a sense of nationhood in a sense. And one book that I've read which is called The Bible Unearthed. Do you guys know that one? No, I should read it. Very interesting. It's a meta-analysis of the archaeological work done in the so-called Holy Lands over, you know, the last couple of hundred years. And what they decided was that the, you know, the Jewish Bible, I don't know what you want to call it, but the collection of Jewish holy books Mm -hmm. was actually assembled by one particular king, uh, Josiah, I think his name was in the 7th century BC, mm-hmm. and, and they claim that he actually you know, assembled all the various stories and myths and books as a particular political project mm-hmm. to give the you know, disparate tribes that he was trying to pull together as a nation to give them a sense of their own history and their own identity and nationhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. According to Canon Malik, he says, the children of Israel who first arrived in Canaan were probably marginalised and dispossessed nomads who had roamed the fertile crescent. Mm. Over time, their patchwork of tales became stitched together into a single narrative of common history and shared gods. Um, and the original settlers had arrived in Canaan sometime in the first half of the second millennium BCE, and the various kingdom or the various tribes were united into a single kingdom by Saul. His successors were David and Solomon, who extended the borders. Um, Solomon built the temple that was eventually destroyed. So, yeah, in the same way that the Odyssey and the Iliad was a collection of stories (coughs) around about the same time, the Tanakh was a collection of stories, a group of tribes melted together. Mm. That's all it is. Yeah. Mm. Um, And they were basically... As you say, just mm. a disparate group of tribes. They mm. weren't a single self-identified uh, mm. group of Jewish people at that time. Mm. You know, so, that, was, that was a political creation. Yeah. So the other thing about Judaism was that um, basically other gods uh, basically had to be ferociously suppressed. Like really prior to that, there was a lot of polytheism around where Live and let live. Okay, you've got your God, I've got my God. Who you know? Yeah. Who really cares? But it sort of brought about an era where you are dead set wrong if you've got another God, and I'm not happy that you've got this other God. Mm. So that was part of the whole monotheism thing that came about with Judaism. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was the sort of start of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, rather than thinking about morals and virtues and trying to work it out, we sort of regressed a step into. Well, here are the stories laid down, and you've got to follow what God tells you if you're going to make your way to heaven. And originally, 
heaven wasn't really a concept for the Jews. No. It was more you were going to get your reward on this earth. But once they started to get really badly persecuted, uh, they started to see that people were suffering and weren't getting their just rewards. So they then started developing a concept of heaven as an afterlife because clearly some really good people were going through a terrible time and were not getting the so-called yeah. rewards that they were supposed to Which be getting. Which kind of so, undermines the whole yes. basis of the... Um, yes. I, I don't think the, the Old Testament doesn't mention hell, but the New Testament is... Uh, is the, the, the kingdom is to be on earth. Yeah, it's, 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 is that what you My understanding, understand, Jewish... It, the thought evolved over time, definitely evolved over time, but yes, no, there's no, there's no uh, hell, uh, there's no... Um, there's no devil in the Old Testament. There's certainly Satan. Satan's a slightly different character, uh, mm. but uh, but it, it certainly evolved. I think by, by by the time of Jesus, then there was this light and dark, good and evil sort of thing evolving. But but mm. Jeremy, could I just go back to that point about the the the, the Jewish law? Though it comes back to this idea of a covenant, though that that I, I don't think it's God imposing your to do this. He didn't say, oh, I'm taking control. This was a, I think it's always understood, this is a bargain. These are covenants. Moses, on behalf of his people, said, I've agreed with Yahweh, and, and, and if, you, if you abide by these laws, then God will protect you, and God is on your side. So it's, it's not this, so much so of an imposition is, as, a, a, as a covenant. Or, or, in other words, an enterprise bargaining agreement. If you'd like, yes. <laughs> well... The Jews were the chosen people of God. And well, sort of, well, he certainly chose them, but, yes. but, but there's always yeah. covenants being mm. made. And he said, I will be your God. You yes. will have no other God other than yes. me. But, but this is the deal. There's a deal being done y- yes. here. It's not a, okay, no, no, yeah. I've chosen you and you have no say in this it. This is the exchange. There's yes. constantly uh, throughout but, the Old Testament covenants being made. So, so, but is it a choice if, if, you're believe, if you believe what God says, then is there really a choice then? Oh, Oh, thanks, God, for the offer, but, yeah, I think I might just reject that and just uh, hard, know, hard to say, suffer the consequences. I hard mean, to say, really? but, you know, the reality is you're brought up in a religion and yeah. that's just your religion, so yeah. you, you follow those rules. But, but, it, but it's not so much in position. The theory is that it's, a, it's still a covenant made yes. between Moses de- on behalf of his people with, with Yahweh. How do you define yeah. covenant? Isn't yeah. it a sort of a, contract? Agreement. Yeah, it means mm-hmm. agreement, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Jesus is... His, his, his new covenant was upon his death, this is my body, this is my blood, that the, mm. I, I, upon my death I will make the new covenant and you have a new path to mm. heaven. That, that was coming out of the New Testament then. So mm. well, it's, all the, it's all sort of quid pro quo though, isn't it? It's well, all, very much you, so, you, and this you, is a idea tradition. of haggling and, and it's, it's, it, it's it, a cultural it, thing it, as but, well. But, it, yeah. but, but, it, the, but the point, Peter, I'm, yeah. I'm saying is that yeah. it's not about virtue or morality, it's about mm. you will do this yeah. so oh. that you can achieve... Yes, so and so reward, and if you don't do this, uh, hell awaits you. It's about Mm. obedience, isn't it? Mm. It's not Mm. about examining your life and deciding whether you're a good person. It's about obedience. It's not about moral reasoning. That's right. Yeah, it's not reasoning as to what's what's true. It's about obeying what the law is. No, I agree. Yes, I agree. Yes. Yeah, there's no real sense of genuine altruism in these religions because it's always a case of. If you do these things, you will be rewarded in some sense. Oh, I don't know if that's or, right. Or you, I mean, thou shalt not kill. Yep. You, know, you can't just say, well, that's just a rule. Let's not think about... I mean, that's a, do you really need to think about that as requiring... 
We needed the we needed it on the we needed it on the commandments. You, you or of, else we were. Do you really need to think hard about that as being a moral sort of? Uh, can't you just sort of? No, no but yeah. that's not really what I'm getting at. No. I'm sort of getting at the point that um, that the sort of guidelines or moral virtues of doing these things, mm. loving your neighbour, turning the other cheek, etc., are all put forward in Christianity at least that by doing so you'll enter heaven. So. It's not really a ultra, true altruism is doing something where there's an expectation you oh, may not get anything in return. No, no I agree. As, and, as, and all and the whole yeah. concept of Christianity is there's a return here if you do the right if you do these things you will. That's that's get the case that, exactly right. But, and that's the irony though, isn't yes. it? What's what is so appealing about Jesus's message yes. is the selflessness of it, the sacrifice of it, yes. and the um, you know the. Um, the, charitable the charity yeah. and the yeah. doing things right, turning the other cheek, mm-hmm. and loving your loving your enemies. So, but you're only doing it just so you can get a reward in the end. So was Mother yeah. Teresa only doing all that work so she could get to heaven? Oh, don't start. Of? Don't start us on Mother <laughs> Teresa. You no, realise no. how bad Mother Teresa was. <laughs> oh, okay. She okay. she was a terrible woman. Oh, okay. Well, I won't she, start you on that. You know, <laughs> Mother Teresa was into yeah. suffering. She, she really wanted right, other okay. people to suffer. She was a suffering okay. fetish. She was a terrible, terrible Mother Teresa. Was no Mother Teresa. Let okay, me tell you. There you go. It's yeah. another story there. Yeah. Okay. Her name was Agnes. Yeah. And she got she got her treatment at uh, the, one of the finest medical institutions in America. That's right. Yeah. yeah. While at the same time, instead of buying drugs for the people in her care, she sent the money to the Vatican mm. Bank. Yes. <laughs> as, as part of all this, part of my research, I was reading some Bertrand Russell, and ah. uh, he was explaining that um, it was turbulent times uh, around the period where uh, when Jesus died and... Um, uh, what was going on at that, that time, and people were looking for comfort in a religion. And one of the problems with Judaism was uh, circumcision mm-hmm. and uh, a restricted diet in what you were, things you could eat. Yes. And according to Bertrand Russell, uh, that made it really difficult to promote Judaism. But Christianity was this sort of... Um, um, sect, if you like, originally, sort of the Jesus sect of of Judaism. And guess what? You didn't need to be circumcised. Well, there's a bonus. <laughs> and you can, and eat, you can eat whatever you like. Because I originally said when we were I talking... you we, had to be circumcised in Christianity. I no. think that I came mean, later. Is, is, than no, there was... Why are, is, what, all Protestants were, though, for centuries? Is that right or am I... It may, have come back, it may have come back into favour. Yeah, it's but, come back into favour, but, yeah. but Paul was very strong on that. That was the distinction, was yeah. the, the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Yeah. It's See, coming. I said two weeks ago when we were talking, what a great salesman Paul was. Like, he could sell ice to Eskimos, but I hadn't taken into account. He had the greatest <laughs> argument in the world, the, the circumcision <laughs> argument. He could say, you can have all of this religion stuff, yeah. and we won't have to chop a piece of foreskin off. Like, that's a compelling... Yep. Selling proposition. That was a unique selling point that he had there. <laughs> so he didn't so, require it. So no, no, for, no. no. He, he came back to bite him later because, as you know from his letters, he he was continually having to write to his churches, reminding them that it wasn't just love God and please yourself. There were still rules that he thought you should obey, and he kept writing letters saying, "Well, you still have to do these things." But but uh, he stripped away a lot of the um, strict observance that the Jews required. Mm. That that is, you didn't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. Mm. You could be uh, Jesus was a path to heaven mm. in 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 its own way for yeah, the Gentile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so point one is that a lot of what was in the Bible was basically a 
a rehashing of stories and myths that had developed by generations of people prior to that. And a lot of it was ideas that people had been um, thinking of and using. And, you know, humans were co cooperating and getting along for tens of thousands of years, creating all sorts of civilizations uh, very happily without Christianity and continue to do so in areas where the Bible was completely unknown. So to say... Uh, the other point in this is that when you're looking at the Bible is there's so many contradictions in terms of the moral concepts and what to do and what not to do that it's not like you can pick up the Bible and just follow it. You still have to pick and choose and decide I have to... You know, there'll be... The Bible will be completely contradictory and you have to say, well, I'm going to choose one or the other. So mm. people are still making their own moral choice when they're following a so-called Bible edict because there's another alternative in there somewhere in the Bible. That's one of the problems of such an inconsistent document. So, yes. um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's all that part. Um, and what I wanted to get on to was how are we going for time-wise here? We're here, okay, we're probably about 40 minutes or something like that. So uh, let me grab another book. The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Human Evolution by Richard Wrangham. So this is a good book. Oh, I, I recommend I, it to I you. I read that. Yeah. So um, – what this book says is uh, he's looked at the evolution of mankind and basically he said that uh, human beings, when you compare us to other animals, our closest neighbours, chimpanzees and things like that, we're extremely low on, on hot reactive aggression. So if you look at a group of chimpanzees, they'll whack each other at the slightest provocation or even without it. Like, they're continually bickering and fighting and niggling each other. There's sort of hot aggression happening all the time in those communities where human beings, you know, you can put 300 of us in a little sardine and fly us across the country and we'll 99 times out of 100 behave and just get on with each other. And Unless we're a rock star or a tennis player. Yeah, indeed. So this is a sort of a unique capacity of human beings is that when it comes to that sort of hot aggression reacting we're extremely low on that we have a capacity for planned aggression so we can coldly calculate to um, invade another country and send bombs and do things of that like of that nature but that sort of hot reactive aggression we're, we're extremely low on that's one of our unique features and he makes an argument that um Human beings have become domesticated somehow and that if you would compare us with our ancient ancestors, it would be like comparing uh, a household dog with a wolf. And uh, he explains this domestication process where uh, there's these characteristics of domestication that occur and basically uh, bodies become smaller Males become less male and more feminised. Skulls get smaller. Jaws and teeth get smaller. Um, uh, you'll see on sort of wolves and, and primitive dogs, they've got a long snout, but in a, in a domesticated species, the snout gets smaller. Same with humans. So the 
There's a lot of the features of the domestication of a wolf into a dog that have appeared in human beings. And um, there's a range of other sort of biological factors you can get into. Um, one of the things is... Um, uh, what are these uh, these cells that he talks about? Um, I might skip over that, but <coughs> gives a really good argument as to the fact that somehow human beings became domesticated, and um, uh, he asks, "How did that come about?" And his answer is that at some point when humans could communicate. You had to overcome the, um, the the idea that an aggressive alpha male gets whatever he wants is really hard to sort of stop. Like you see it all the time in the animal kingdom mm. that these bullying alpha males just wreak havoc in a community and keep um, uh, uh, the alpha males subdued and, and there's very little cooperation because of the alpha male dominating and... Essentially, when human beings reached the point that they could communicate, we had the idea of whispering beta males. Hmm. So beta males could get together and say, that guy's a real asshole. Let's all just jump on him and kill him. (laughs) Cooperation. Yeah. And so he says that you've got sort of... uh, You're trying to work out two reasons why people became cooperative. One is, you know, this idea of a cooperative group in warfare will beat an uncooperative group. So a a group full of altruistic cooperating individuals in a warfare scenario will outbeat the sort of squabbling masses of uncooperative ones. Mm. And so then they'll outbreed them because they'll win the battles and they'll, they'll sort of that in, um, encourages altruism. The alternative theory is that within groups you have the whispering beta males or uh, gathering together and knocking off disruptive, um, super-aggressive alpha males. And he gives compelling reasons as to why that second one is probably the most likely scenario, particularly when you look at... Um, <coughs> primitive hunter-gatherer situations, uh, when they're going to sort of war against each other, two tribes, there's no incentive for somebody to be particularly altruistic and and at the head of the firing line, if you like. Like, generally, they're skirmishes where people try not to get hit, and if they do, they run at the... You know, once one person's killed, it's all over and they sort of retreat or whatever. Mm. There, There isn't actually a reward for being altruistic in that sort of scenario there isn't anything compelling so um gives other reasons as well so but the idea of the whispering beta males that does happen in primitive societies you can go through africa and um places like that where there are still hunter-gatherer societies by the way he makes the point that uh studying them for years as he did they're just like these people back in england as far as he was concerned they 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 had lovers, they had power conflicts, they had fun and games. They just conducted themselves the way most human beings do, but they just happened to do it in a dirt hut and in a, in a different environment. But basically, mm. hunter-gatherer societies without the benefit of the Judeo-Christian ethic basically conducted themselves as the way you would expect 
us to do if we were thrown into the same situation. Mm. But getting back to this idea of um, uh, this execution hypothesis that the groups manage to domesticate by bumping off the super aggressive um, or troublesome characters who are causing problems for the community. Um, and so and that, and that um, <coughs> then um, the evolutionary uh, selection bias would have got rid of m- more of those alpha males yes. triggering us more towards a uh, they more domesticated version of the beta that's right. male. That's right. The aggressive alpha males weren't breeding then because they mm. were bumped off. They were dead. Pushed off the ice. Yep. And the more cooperative, pro-social beta males were the ones who managed to breed. And would you believe that Charles Darwin talked about this? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't yeah. know that. So um, uh, Charles Darwin was anxious to provide an evolutionary explanation for positive moral behaviour because he recognised that we had it and it didn't really seem to make sense that we, we did have this positive moral behaviour. Mm-hmm. People at the time were trying to say it was a blessing from God. Mm. And Darwin was saying, well, I can't rely on that because the whole thesis is there's no intervention by God in this whole process that I'm talking about. So he was looking at what were the reasons. And he said that, um, uh, let me just find it here. Um, Spotify oh. hasn't added support for oh. that. With... I'll turn that off. Spotify. Um, bear with me one second. Um, So he had to explain it without the influence of religious beings. And he observed that in contemporary societies, um, he called them malefactors, so people who were a pain in the arse, who were stealing, killing, raping, you know, Mm. malefactors. In our societies, they're either executed or imprisoned. So he could see that in our modern societies, we can deal with those people and get them out of the system. But he recognised that they didn't have that capacity of imprisonment in primitive societies. And um, so he recognised that prehistoric human societies might have found some ways to harshly deal with violent and quarrelsome men. And if exceptionally aggressive men were always routinely punished in ways that reduced their reproductive success, there would have been eons of prehistory in which the culling of violent men could lead to evolutionary change. And Darwin's conclusion was forthright. The morality problem could be solved by an ancient system of execution, leading to the eradication of selfishly immoral individuals, which would lead to selection against selfish tendencies in favour of social tolerance. Uh, Through this kind of natural selection, he wrote, quote, the fundamental social instincts were originally thus gained. So he actually put this up as a theory. Hmm. He also put the other theory about that I mentioned just before, and that was the one that sort of got the attention. But Richard Rangman says he really likes the first theory of Mm -hmm. this uh, execution-style thing. So, um, And really that comes down to then not only would uh, you had to then, there was the power of the group could control you uh, if you didn't toe the line. So as a member of a group, Remember, if you were ostracised out of the group in those days, that was a death sentence. And Mm. so part of our moral um, system that's hardwired into us is 
to do and act in ways that won't see us booted out of the group mm. or won't see us executed for being assholes. Yeah. Uh, so would, the, the would you, sorry, you, would you necessarily die if you booted out of the group? I suppose if you're an Eskimo or a... Back in those living yeah, in a, at, at some point, yes. But if you were living in a, in a warmer region and you're a good hunter, you'd still survive, but you wouldn't reproduce because you wouldn't have a mate, perhaps. You'd still need... Um, mm. You'd still need... There'd be times where you couldn't hunt. You'd need, you know, pre- gatherers. Pre- predators, mm. injury, mm. you know, mm. you... you, you, you you break a leg, you'll you'll die. Yeah, well, yeah. you would anyway, yeah. probably. Oh, but but you know, you might be cared for. But injuries, you know, there must be a point where you yes, you your prospects are very low. They'd be certainly lower. Yeah. 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 So what we get down to is that a lot of our reaction to sort of moral mm. questions can actually be explained by having been bred into us over our evolution mm-hmm. as a means of staying in with the group. Not being executed Makes sense. for yeah. quarrelsome. Yeah. Um, and um, so um, looking at things like uh, Good Samaritan, why, why would we help somebody who's not in need of our help and we could just walk past them and they're not really our son or daughter or, any, or whatever like that. But when they've done things like they've observed small children um, and put them in scenarios of like a Good Samaritan type situation... Small children will naturally try to help out, even against the instructions of of adults. Like it's inbred in us, hardwired to some extent, that we behave in certain ways without any training at all, mm-hmm. uh, cultural or from our parents. So, um, and some of this inbreeding can help explain our reaction to some. Um, Ethical dilemmas, Hugh. <laughs> okay, yeah. here we go. So the classic trolley problem oh, yes. is trolley heading down the, the track. Uh, it's going to crash into five people. You stand there and there's a lever that you could switch the trolley onto a different track where it will kill one person. Do you allow the trolley to continue on its way or do you, you know, switch it and only kill one person? So... Uh, According to studies, most people, uh, let me see, 90% pull the lever to save five and kill one. Anyone disagree with that as being probably likely? I mean, you may even be in the 10%, Hugh. No, no. <laughs> but, no, no. But then, but then... Makes sense. Yeah. I think, and, and I think that, most of us would say you've got to pull the lever and, and then, you, then you'll go to the bridge and the fat man. Yep. No. Uh, no. The organ donation. Have you heard this oh. one? Okay, go on. Yeah. So uh, you've got somebody, uh, you've got five patients who are all going to die. Mm-hmm. They need organ transplants. And you've got one healthy person who has all the necessary organs, <laughs> right? Should you, Should you up cut up the healthy person and distribute the organs amongst the other five to save them? And the answer is that 95% would not agree to such an operation. Oh, the five so would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Do, do, you, indeed. do you know that the uh, person with the, with the five organs taken out... Yeah. Were they were, an were, 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 yeah. <laughs> were they an alpha male? Well, actually, uh, Cam Riley has a theory about um, the nuclear codes for the you know countries with nuclear weapons. He said that, that the... Um, 
that the nuclear codes should be um, inserted into the chest of the vice president. And if the president wants to use them, he's got to... He's got to grab a knife and cut open, physically cut open the chest of the vice president to get to them because if he's not willing to do that, then he shouldn't be willing to drop a bomb that's going to kill millions of people. Like, it was just an interesting concept, yeah. So, but, um, so the trolley problem, on the face of it, on the bare facts, is kind of the same situation. Kill one to save five. And on one avenue, we take a utilitarian approach, I think. Yes. Um, Maximise the the general good. Mm. And on the second one, we take the deontological principle, which is right and wrong are absolutes. Mm. And we've really intuitively picked those without a good, clear moral reasoning as to why. When you say deontological, you mean because the principle that killing is wrong... Correct. ...that you must apply that principle. Correct. But you ditch it with the trolley because you go switch to the other one, which seems fairer. Because with the trolley one, you're not Mm. directly killing somebody. Indeed. You're Mm. just redirecting fate in a sense, whereas... Mm. With the it's a diff, it's a different 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 ethical dilemma because mm-hmm. your action is completely different. Yes, it's for instance, it's a different ethical. You're getting thing. your hands dirty. Yeah, I'm getting my hands dirty. Now mm-hmm. you, you're you're also um, it's a similar th- different thing to administer euthanasia by a lethal injection by or by the one press, person pressing the button than it is to kill someone with a knife. Mm-hmm. It's a different moral yep. thing because you're using a different method. Mm. One is more horrifying, more painful. Well, this guy has a theory that a lot of our actions are based on what will the group think of us in this situation? Mm, we need to be we need to have some plausible deniability if the group attacks us for our action. Yep. So um, so we have some inherent biases in us he calls an inaction bias, which is to do nothing and incur less blame, a side effect bias, whereas it's not so bad if the result is something of a side effect, and a non-contact bias, meaning most people prefer an action which allows them to avoid touching someone who is about to be harmed. Who it's, says that? This guy Rangman in this book. And so what he's saying is that um, we hardwired into us, um, if we're going to do something borderline, need to have a plausible excuse for our community that they won't boot us out or kill us. Does he say that in relation to the trolley problem and its various paradoxes? uh, Well, he gave the example of the trolley Mm. problem, the organ donation, and... On the one hand, if you're standing there covered in blood over the body of a person who's <laughs> had their organs yeah. ripped out, yeah. it's harder to explain to your group, I thought I was doing the right thing. <laughs> um, you, you're, yeah, but you, I don't buy that because right. I think all of us would have an implicit reaction that we know mm. we know that we're comfortable with the lever action, but we know that we're definitely uncomfortable with ripping someone's organs out. But he's saying that's... But be- it's not just because of... And, and why, do you know? why do you know? Why do you know? It's a gut instinct, and he's saying yes, these yes, gut instincts come about yeah. because of this of this evolution. It's the same way that when you get when you do a commit a social faux pas and you feel embarrassed and you just have this terrible feeling in your gut and your face goes red and it's like oh did yeah. I did I really 
go against the social norm here and I, I feel really bad about it. Like that's mm. an uncontrollable gut instinct that is a preservation sort of uh, thing that has been hardwired into us yeah. through um, – yeah. and he's saying the reason why you chose the trolley but didn't choose the operation is part of that hardwiring, that a lot of our moral – or some of our moral decision-making – that we can't really explain that's really on instinct. Is, that's is, the point I was, I was going to make. It, it, there's got to be reasons mm-hmm. and it, it's that reasoning that you have to say, why Why is it? How can I rationalise this? How mm. do I get from A to B? Because um, it comes up in legal theory as well, this idea that um, like, there's things like uh, uh, some laws say you're not to drive in excess of the speed limit. That's just straightforward. The question is, did you? Were you driving the car? Were you in excess of the speed limit? But there's other things like don't drive dangerously. Mm. And they're to do with this, well, how ought you drive? And it's not your personal opinion. It's, it's this idea that there is a community value there. Mm. There's a kind of, kind of driving that – but how do you rationalise that? The police just have to say, that's dangerous driving. You can't drive like that. Mm. And what they're doing is they're saying, I reckon that if I arrest you for dangerous driving, other people will agree with me. Yes. That's dangerous. The, the judge just doesn't say – well, officer, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was dangerous. Oh, that's the end of yes. it. The judge goes, well, we, we've got to judge this. So What's the community standard? It's, it's, yeah, there's a community mm. standard there that it's what <coughs> ought to happen. And mm. we have that right now today in, in, in courts right now, the, mm. this idea that, well, it's got to be objective and you've got to have a reason for it. And the reason is just that, well, the community what, what would, would say... What would most people think? What would, what most would the reasonable man think? Yeah, what would most people think? Yeah. They'd say, you shouldn't be doing that. There's a law against that. Is and if you don't have a law against that, people get really, really upset. And is that why when the officer stops you and the first thing he says to you is, do you have a lawful reason for exceeding the speed limit? Because that's what they say to well, mm. Because the community would then yeah. say, yeah. well, if you are racing to get your pregnant wife to... That's right. That's right. Yeah. Then, and yeah. if, he, if, if yeah. you refuse to pay yeah. the fine yeah. and you take it to court, yeah. Yeah. the officer has to be able to explain that's that right. he yeah. Yeah. gave you the opportunity yeah. to give a We've all got our reason. choices to make, but... but if you have to give reasons, they often based on a community value, mm. which is, I reckon other people would agree with me that that's mm. you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Mm. So that's that happens today. Yeah. Mm. So there we go. Um, so just looking at our current society, um, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast called "Whispering Beta Male Something or Other," is. Mm. We've got some alpha males in the world right now who own half the joint. Like mm. in the, you know. In the in our prehistory, we would have said, "You're getting too big for your boots." And in primitive societies, uh, particularly our indigenous brothers and sisters here in Australia, if you killed a large animal or something, it was not the done thing to boast about it. Like mm. you had to keep your head down. You didn't want to pop your head above the parapet and be seen to be too big for your boots, because the whispering beta males would say, "Hang on, mate." Mm. Tone it down a bit. You're getting a bit above your station, isn't it? Indeed. Um, So um, in our modern world, um, we've lost the ability to chop down the the alpha males and um, we need to start doing it via a wealth tax, not a physical, (laughs) just actually chopping (laughs) them down, but, you know, that's for another topic anyway. (laughs) Um, And so just sort of uh, tying it all up then is... Really, when we're looking at the sort of moral code that went into Greek philosophy and into the Bibles, uh, which really came about largely through myths and legends, sort of rights and wrongs were being developed in an evolutionary sense by human history 
all the way leading up to that. And these are things that people have um, intuitively decided as what's right or wrong well before it was written in a book and they were mm. told that's the case. Mm-hmm. Or, or needed somebody to actually give a rational explanation because in their gut they knew hardwired, I shouldn't be cutting up this person for an operation but I can flick the, uh, the trolley lever switch. Exactly, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so Jonathan Haidt uh, has wrote about that pretty extensively, a uh, book with the righteous mind about the foundations of morality, right. suggesting that uh, our morality is instinctive and, and has, uh, say, five dimensions to it. Right. Uh, and I think that's a very, very persuasive argument. So mm. the psychologists, uh, and his, his viewpoint has been very popular, very uh, embraced by a lot of people. So um, I've, I've got down the five things here. So the, the five foundations are, say, care and harm, fairness, cheating, uh, loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, and sanctity, degradation. And then he added a sixth one, which was liberty versus oppression. Hmm. That fairness and cheating one, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the studies they do is the, um, the ultimatum game where oh, you've yes. got a person who's got $10 and they can decide how they're going to split it with another person and the other person can either reject or accept their offer. If they reject, then nobody gets anything. If they accept, then the offer's accepted. So the person's got $10 and says, well, I'll split it 50-50. Person A says, I've got $10. Uh, I agree to split it 50-50. Person B will invariably say, well, that's fair. I accept the deal and we're done. And they do these experiments with people where they can't even see each other. And uh, I think, you know, you can get down to 70-30 or something like that where person A says, I'm keeping 70, I'm only going to give you 30 but below that level, uh, people who are only offered 20% say, stuff it, I'm not even going to take the 20, I'm going to make us both lose. There's a sort of sense of fairness. And they can do that test with um, Kalahari Bushmen and with Golden Sachs bankers and everything in between, and we there tend to go. come up with the same result mm. as a hardwired sense of fairness. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Sounds like a divorce settlement. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where one party says, uh, I'm taking 90%, you can have 10 you you've you've got your car, off you go, you know. Yeah. No, sorry, we're going to court over this. Yeah, except in, the, in this scenario, when the person B says no, it means neither of them gets yeah. anything. Do you bring and the whole house to Yeah, right. and people yeah. are prepared to accept, I'll get nothing, but I'm really pissed oh, with that guy. Thing. It all goes on cost. Yeah, yeah that, that, well, that's, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, if you had a situation where there was an offer in a family court settlement of, oh, I'm going to give you five or ten percent, for yeah, example, yeah. somebody would say, "Well, bugger it, I'll, I'll piss well, up yes. the wall in legal I'll, costs." I'll that's right. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, that probably. sometimes mm. actually happens, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's mm. true. So there is that innate sense of fairness. Mm. Yeah. So given all that, and it seems like uh, we're all sort of seeming to agree that mm. uh, morality might be instinctive and mm. that it, it perhaps derives from our evolution in living in communities. Yes. And um, there's also the idea, which has been very well established by studies on children, that children, as you were saying before, tend to have a sense of fairness 
Mm. They'll be the good Samaritan. They also they have a sense of what is right or wrong without being told and will often argue with an adult correctly as to what the right or wrong thing is. Then how does that then, in your opinion, um, marry with the idea of moral reasoning then? And why is all of this philosophy about what's right or wrong and what objective moral values are? Because I know, Trevor, you and I have argued uh, Mm. extensively that whether objective moral values actually exist, Mm. uh, like moral truths, do they exist? Many people say that they do. So how does that that even marry with uh, reasoning about morals? If Mm. our morality is basically derived from what's instinctive, and then our societies and our individuals and our cultures just manipulate a few, say, in Jonathan Haidt's uh, example, five different modes of morality. Our, our reasoning is based only on instinctive things. How do, I, I, how I would do you... say that instinct, though, is usually geared towards promoting the community. Like, generally... Yes, but they, instinct is only based on survival value and, yeah, and what has yeah, and yeah, selection but, bias. But, yeah, but those sorts of things that are hardwired into us are kind of things that uh, promote the community at large um, so that one person doesn't get everything or gets, doesn't get an unfair advantage. It's, it's a communal type Enforcement, it so appears to me, and, and humans are unique in that we actually enforce these things because when they look at um, chimpanzees and one chimp might be cheating on another chimp in terms of um, like uh, stealing food or even beating up other chimps, there's no enforcement by the other chimpanzees of, of any morals amongst them. Humans are unique that we're watching and observing and we're saying... Uh, you're transgressing a, a community uh, ethos here. Um, we're pulling you up. So I think a lot of these inbuilt instinctive things that we have are designed to keep community harmony and community flourishing and not let one person dominate or take mm. more than a fair share. Sure. Okay, so I accept all that. And mm. forgive me for the Socratic questioning. Mm. Yeah, okay. But you yeah. started that at the start, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to bring yeah. it back. But if yeah. it's just based on our community, how can we have objective moral values? Because um, also I'd probably disagree mm. that chimpanzees have their own moral codes in mm. their own societies. For instance, they will, <coughs> they will uh, punish transgressors and they will also patrol their territory and other chimpanzees from other rival tribes, if they're found wandering, chimpanzees will hunt them down and kill them. Yeah, that's a, that's a tribal, um, tribal sort of um, protection of area. But the first part you mentioned about pulling up transgressors within the community, not really. So that's not correct in my understanding. But what was the question before that? You're saying, so if, so if, 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 if our moral values then are entirely derived from our sense of community... How can they be objective? How can they be objective, universal moral truths so then, if they are only subject to our... So they only apply to humans and they don't, for instance, apply to any other animal forms, even if there was another group of very human-like beings somewhere in the universe. Yeah. Uh, I, think I, that, that, I think that begs the philosophical question about... Uh, um, um, are these things made by humans or are they natural? I mean, I, That's what objective I, I, moral truths are, yeah. though, that, that, that they must be true. But, I, but doesn't that beg the question, it's got some natural source, like it's... 
comes from God or, or these other sort of things. It, 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 these are made by people. Mm. Uh, people have morals. Uh, and animals will have something else, I think. A different species will have something else. It's, it, it's, it's created by people. Uh, it doesn't come from some... I thought that was the whole point of the, that what discussion. I would, was that I, it was I, would, just, I would absolutely agree with it, what you're it's saying. It's not coming from some external natural source. It, it's made by people make these things. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. But yeah. then you get people who are also um, secularists and atheists, such as Sam Harris, who would say that there are objective moral values and you can measure them scientifically. You can say what is the, the best situation for all sentient creatures. Yeah, that's what Sam Harris argues. Mm. Yeah. So, how does Sam Harris argue the uh, the organ donation one? I'm not sure if he's addressed that specific <laughs> yeah. question, right? Because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he flicked the lever. Yeah, yeah. but I just yeah, well, he's a consequentialist, and you know mm. his moral landscape argument that uh, you should be able to measure scientifically the good, mm. yes. the overall good, and there might be several different equal parts yes. of what the good is. So he would probably agree to the operation by the sounds of it. Because he's got that full-on Unitarian sort of mm. thing, isn't it? Uh, sure I, I don't. I'm not sure because I, I, he yeah. would he would say that the intentions and the actual act of whatever you do are part of the moral consequences mm. of. It, his is a, mm. basically a consequentialist mm. uh, philosophy, which is part utilitarian. He, the short answer is I don't know, but when I've worked out the meaning of life, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Well, I was kind of hoping we would get to it uh, in this episode, the meaning of life, and you know, solve it all. But uh, you know, perhaps another time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah. So that's my sort of knowledge and theories on evolution. And uh, so, what you're saying, Trevor, is our Western civilization would have been just as good, maybe a little bit different in some ways, but would have still existed without the so-called. Judeo-Christian ethic. We, we are hardwired pro-social creatures. Mm. We would have, we would have produced laws and customs with some variations, of course but we would. generally pro-social. There was the Indian mm. civilization, the mm. Chinese civilization. Mm. They didn't have Judeo-Christian yeah. traditions. The interesting mm. thing is where the world's getting to at the moment is because previously you needed to be part of the community, otherwise you would die. You know, left out on the savannah on your own, you're a goner. Mm-hmm. These days we've created a world where you could be quite a dysfunctional human being and you can still You can become a, president of the United indeed, States. Indeed you can. <laughs> or you can, you can conduct a job, you know, you could be a computer programmer living in your mum's basement and having no contact with the world at all. Like it's possible for people to be quite dysfunctional mm. And the village doesn't get to um, regulate people anymore like it used to. Mm. Uh, the community doesn't. And Is it, isn't it better to be in a more pluralist society when there are many views than the dominant sort of punishing sort of uh, norm? Mm. And, and good point. Malik makes that point is that oh, okay. in certain communities are too rigid like the Spartans didn't allow for any variation, yep. then other communities are so disparate and unconnected that they are then overtaken by other countries that are less um, uh, civilised but more cohesive. Yes. Um, so you need an amount of cohesiveness to hold you together oh, exactly. or... or Basically, a band of cohesive barbarians take you over, sort of thing, is what happened in history to some extent. Mm. If people were 
had no sense of community. Oh, that's the Aussie, Aussie, yeah. Aussie. Yeah. Some people would argue that's currently happening in Europe. <laughs> well, all over the world you could argue that um, we've, we've reached an interesting time in our evolution where the village and the community can't really regulate people anymore like it used to. No. I think it's a question, though, overall of morality, though, mm. when, we, when we say that it is community-driven and mm. driven by our civilization and how it's evolved that we could probably all accept that our the way we've evolved specifically and what we've currently agreed to be the things that we consider moral and immoral, they're quite different than what they were 2,000 years ago and they're quite different than what they were 6,000 years ago. It's quite conceivable that we could have evolved into very, very similar beings with quite a different moral code. And so then if you consider that our morality is based on how we've evolved as a community, I get back to the point that I was saying before, then how does reason play a part in that morality and isn't the the part of reason in that morality only really what's driven Mm -hmm. by evolution and survival? And then doesn't that sort of create a bit of a tension in your own mind about what morality is then? Yeah, I sort of disagreed right at the beginning with your premise where you sort of said we're very different to people of 2,000 years ago. And well, I, our, moral, I don't, um, I, our moral, our moral I, principles, I'm not saying we're I, different, we are exactly the same as I, people, but we, our moral principles yeah. are totally so different. So, like, for, are they? for, well, they for, are, for example, yes. like, um, I think read the history, Slavery. Of, the history of fire insurance once I got into and the idea was that where it all started from is that, you know, villages, because it was called fire insurance because... Today's home and contents, but then the idea was that you wanted to protect from things burning down because you had fires and mm. homes were burned down. So the village would all get together and contribute to a fund because every year somebody's house would burn down in the village. Right. So you'd always have a fund to sort of rebuild the particular house, etc., etc. Yes. But today we don't have that. We're sort of it's up to you. You ensure your own home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm. there's, there's not, there, there isn't really that sort of community. Is that the kind of thing you're talking I about? I am, we're, yeah. We're, that, that's we're, a very specific yeah. moral precept that's evolved because of that actual physical situation. The world could be a different place. We could have evolved as slightly different beings. For instance, Neanderthals were very, very similar to uh, Homo sapiens. In fact, considered part of the same human um, species by some, would their morality have been different than ours? And therefore, morality isn't really based on our reasoning. It's only based on what is what, what works for us to survive. Well, according to this book, Neanderthals never went through a domestication process. So you can look at the fossil records and that Neanderthal-shaped head... Is is the wolf head, and our head is is the puppy. Like yeah. they didn't go through a domestication process that Homo sapiens did. That's mm. the difference. That's so what we we learn. Yes, through that domestication process, we were then able to cooperate. They didn't have the same levels anywhere the near levels. the same levels they, of they cooperation. Had, um, they had smaller groups. But they were they were quite in, just as intelligent, and so with yeah. Groups, but they they didn't have the uh, the social cooperation skills that we had, and so that they, was that. They, they did, but they may have had them in lesser quantities, yeah, and they had correct. smaller 
smaller groups of people than what we had. But, but that was their downfall, that they didn't have the social cooperation mm. skills that we ended up having. Maybe. We, yeah. I don't think we really know. We don't know mm. why they why they uh, were wiped out or mm. whatever. Well, well, on the point well, of reasoning, well, though, are you, are you, maybe reasoning is, as Trevor was saying at the outset, so that you can say, I'm pretty confident choice A is morally right, you know, like with the, with the lever... Mm. I'm I'm worried about now choice B. Maybe reason, rationality and reasoning is just that thing you use to say, well, if I've if I'm over that view here, what would I think here? It's it's not like the our morals don't come from the it's our rationalization is just to enable us to be able to be consistent and logical and that at some point in our history we thought if we think hard about this, we can work out other problems, and maybe that's all. I think that rationality is about. Yeah, I think that's what I. I, I think I, I'm tending to come to that conclusion as to what you said that we kind of, when we hear a moral paradox or a, we're asked a moral question, we kind of know which way we want to answer. And we justify, don't we? It. And then we justify yeah. it by using. And reason, we also sort of we, we like to find out what other people would say. Like we go, the, yes. the, oh, good. I, I'm what does I, Trevor I'm, think? I don't want to disagree <laughs> yeah. with him yeah. quite so openly. Good, as I, I agree do. with that too. But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's part of justifying. Because I don't want group or, censure. Or, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and maybe enabling us to then solve the next complicated problem when we're not really too sure um, because you've got those reasons. But but the reasons those reasons weren't the reason why you made the first choice because you just said. That's wrong. I'm mm. not doing that. Yes. Yeah. And studies in neuroscience in terms of decision-making have been tending to show that people make the decision before they're even consciously aware yeah. of making the decision. Yeah. Certainly that's the case with politics where people yeah. uh, choose a side and then justify it later. Yeah. Mm. And I think it's the same thing for the police officer when pulling somebody out for dangerous driving. They go, that's dangerous driving. And then why? Uh Okay, <laughs> and they've got to go through and list it, but you know, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. You go, <laughs> yeah, I, I can make a judgment. Yeah, mm. yes. Anybody want anything else? Anything else they want to desperately add to this mm. moral quandary? In the chat room, people have been at it. Good on you. It's too hard for me to keep track of Hugh's uh, conversation <laughs> and read in the chat room at the same time. So I'm sorry that I haven't interacted with you in the chat room, but thank you. Um, uh, Watley the Wizard, most human morals evolved as a means of survival, so many tens of thousands of years ago they became instinctive. Later in recorded history, morals are manipulated by psychopaths. That could be true. So, Is that Cameron Riley? No, that was uh, Watley. But, um, yeah, Cameron's <laughs> written a book on psychopaths, which we'll have to talk to him about at some stage. Yeah, so um, there we go. All right, gentlemen. Well, I reckon that's enough about morals. Um, everything you need to know, but we're afraid to ask. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Oh, time to thank the patrons. Uh, I've got them here. Um, let me just see. Dear listener, uh, on this show, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per episode. Go on to our website and click on the donation link. Head over to Patreon and join people like... Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayne, Oyama, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matche, Robbie, Rod, Palais, Maddickman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Daniel, Harry, Peter, Captain, Doomsday, Wheat Watcher, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, Matthew, Alexander, Paul, Tom, Tero, Camille, Kim, Donnie, Darko, Clinton, Gavin S, Dire Straits 05, Tony Eels, 
yet another Pinker fan, Graham, Mark, <laughs> Citizen6 and David, and the people who do it through PayPal because they don't like Patreon are Dean Ken, Was the Beneficiary, Mr Anderson, Corinne, Matman, David, Beverly and Damien from Redline Digital for all of your WordPress needs. And um, <laughs> Wayne and Jared, there you go. And um, so, yeah, uh, it'll allow me to buy some of this beautiful audio-visual equipment that, <laughs> that Hugh's been... Uh, Yes. Salivating over. Well, and uh, and also books and uh, subscriptions and things that we get into. So, all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I'll let the gentleman sign off. Say bye for now. Bye for now. Good evening. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Talk to you next week. Bye. See ya. Dearly beloved, we gathered here today to mourn the loss of Scott, the Velvet Glove. I honestly believe Scott's knowledge of accounting, craft beer and all that sort of stuff has helped polish Trevor's fist to be the shining secular light that it is today. Please spare a thought for Twelfth Man, who in Scott's absence must now do the work of Thirteen. Finally, Join me in song for him 666. I sold my soul to the mining company store. Amen. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really... What do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event. You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.